0: Here's a place where all of us can be safe. Our stories of transformation can be safe and all the things we wanna research are safe here. This is Safe Space with Cheyenne. I'm really excited you're here and I hope you stick around for a while cause I've got a lot to show you before I leave Earth. I love you guys. Welcome back all my friends. Thanks for joining us for another episode. Today I have brought on Renew Purifoy. Well, he's an author of a lot of inspirational books for anxiety and stress management. Today, he's going to come on and talk to us about a book called Why You Feel the Way You Do. He has an intriguing therapy background with some modalities that he's going to present to us. But right now, we're just going to welcome him into the show and see how your day's going.
1: Well, it's been going great. So it's just just a delight to be here. So...
0: I'm really excited about that. I appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your many talents of helping people over the years. Uh, My first question is, when did you want to start publishing to help people during your um, times in being a therapist?
1: Well, when I I first started in private practice, I started specializing in anxiety disorders. And uh, I went down to L.A. and got some training with a group that was kind of pioneering some new stuff. and came back, realized that more needed to be done, so I just started kind of assembling a program, and it was actually a mail-order program. People would get a tape uh, once a week, and a little lesson, and, and it was like eight weeks long, and so I decided, well, you know, it would be a lot easier just to put all this in a book, and so that's what I did, is I put it in a book, and uh, the, the rest is history, as they say.
0: The rest is history. So, was your first book self-published, or did you go through a publisher?
1: Well, actually, it went through... I self-published it. Uh, It's kind of interesting, because I I sent out about 50... got about 50 rejects from different publishers. And uh, so half of them said the book was too specialized, and the other half said it was too general, which means that I was an unknown author, didn't have any big connections, and so, you know, that was the real reason. So I self-published it. I got on radio. I sold 50,000 of them, and so... That's when Warner Books decided they wanted to pick it up. up. They're now Hachette. Because uh, when you sell a book, uh, or when you're trying to sell a book, there's two places where it gets killed. First would be the editor, is it a good book? And the editor may just think it's the best book in the world. Next thing they do is they send it to marketing. And of course, if the marketing says, I don't think this thing's going to market, then it gets killed there. And in my case, since I was a, was not connected to you know UCLA University or anything like that, you know, they figured, well, he doesn't have any connections, so it's not going to sell. So after I showed him that it could sell, then they picked it up. And that's basically how it got
0: started. That's kind of but, a good underdog story, too, because I know so many people mm-hmm. wanting to go into the publishing mm-hmm. industry, and no matter what they're publishing, they're always terrified of that rejection, of just being like, oh, your work doesn't matter. We're, like, we're not going to partner with you.
1: Right, right. You know, n- another kind of interesting thing about the first book is I had a paper route for seven years, and uh, during that time, I saved up enough money to buy some Kruger rands, And so I bought those, and then I cashed those in. They were like $3,000, and by the time I cashed them in, they got up to about 5000 And that's what I used to publish my first book, was my paper route, buddy. <laughs> That's
0: amazing, though. I love that. I have one small poetry book that's self-published through a platform. Mm. It's called Poetizer. Right. Um, and I just wanted to throw it out in the world. And the success for me was being able to have the guts to publish it in the first place. Right. So I love that you have been able to not only, like, start from the self-publishing, like, oh, this would be easier to send it off to people. But you've built off of it, and you've continued... Mm to publish things over time, specializing again in anxiety and stress. Your um, times when you were, I mean, I don't want to say that you're not a therapist anymore, but didn't you specialize in marriage and family therapy as well?
1: Well, my licensing was as as a marriage family therapist, Mm -hmm. but I specialized in anxiety disorders. And so uh, when I first started, panic disorder was the big thing that I worked with. And at that time it was brand new. I mean, nowadays everybody's doing panic disorder. Um, And, it was something that most people I saw they'd been experiencing it for you know many years, and so it was kind of really entrenched in their life in a lot of different areas. And by the time I retired, it was nice because I saw people where their first panic attack was three months ago, and that was like a piece of cake, you know, mm-hmm. easy to deal with that because you know all the, all the other things that go along with it had an entrenched into their life. Uh, and I was the first person actually through that book in my program to actually do what they call the multimodal program approach, because you would go to the uh, the seminars over the American Anxiety Disorder Association of America, and you'd have your three general schools, your cognitive behavioral people, your, uh, excuse me, your cognitive people, your behavioral, and then your psychodynamic. Nowadays, that all kind of gets put together. And so the psychodynamic, that's kind of the Freudian, you know, the the deep unconscious stuff, they'd get up and they'd do a presentation and then all the behaviorists and the cognitive people would laugh and throw spit wads at them and then the cognitive person would get up and he'd give his presentation. The other two groups, you know, they, they would do that. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of competition and there was the one shoe fits all approach. And, you know, I, I, I said, no, you shotgun it because for a particular person, um, the combi- combination of things that will work for them will be different from the combination on will work for another person. And that's, you know, it's nice to see that that's now more of a general approach that people take. They don't try to shove everybody into just one modality and make, make them fit that when that really is not their personality or their style.
0: I love that you said that. Um, mm-hmm. There was a question that popped up while you were saying that. So, okay, I'm picturing you um, mm-hmm. just like, not even with a family, but maybe like a couple. You had just met them, mm-hmm. you're getting to know them to figure out what direction we're really gonna take. So mm-hmm. what are the first indicators that you find in your clients to even know which modality to really go by? Are there like bulletin points in your head that you study for each well, person? Is,
1: and most people I worked with were individuals. Um, uh, when I first started practice, and this is good for anybody who wants to get into any field. Uh, I looked around and I said, okay, who are two people that are very successful you know, in, in private practice. And so I got two names and I took them to lunch. I said, hey, let me take you to lunch. And I said, okay, tell me what I can do to be like you. And I find that's a good approach. I've, I've recommended that to other people who are in different types of, you know, uh, endeavors. And uh, you usually get really good advice because, you know, a lot of times you're hanging around with people that haven't succeeded. And so you want to go to somebody who's very successful. And one of the things they said is you want to get out there and do a lot of presentations. And don't pass out your little card, because um, that will get thrown away. Give them a piece of paper with something useful on it that they're going to want to keep. So that's what I did. I started doing lots of workshops about anxiety and stress. And it takes about two years of doing that, and then you build your practice. And then pretty soon I got known to be the anxiety guy in my area. So it was. So I always like to say anxiety has been good to me. So.
0: <laughs> anxiety has been good to me. I mean, yeah, yeah I, it's, it's probably just, job security in this world, right?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. It's yeah. That's a whole big subject in itself.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, we'll definitely stay away from that one and veer back over to the book. Uh, but you ask,
1: you what? ask about what I how I approach it, and usually what I would do is I would take an intake, and, and I still do that if I you know see somebody like a church or something, and uh, I find out okay what were their their the adults in their life like you know uh, uh, a mom dad or substitutes your know, aunts uncles whoever raised them. And I tell them, give me a brief description as if you're watching a movie, right? So I get a picture of who these adults were that influenced them. And then I take uh, three uh, early recollections. Uh, Grade school, because that's when a lot of your concepts about am I okay, am I not okay, do I have power, do I not have power come into play. Then middle school, because that's when the train goes off the tracks a lot of times. um, With all that, you know, adolescent, hormonal stuff that pressure and everything else that oh, yeah. takes place in everything middle school. Everything
0: coming yeah. at you at one time, mom's not there to defend you. Oh, yeah.
1: You. And you're separating, and yet you don't want to separate, you know, all that, all that other stuff. And then, then, of course, high school and, and anything significant in the adult world. And from that, I get a, good, a pretty good picture of what the uh, issues are for the person, you know, what's driving them, what I call core response patterns. And then I would just start making some guesses. You know, I, I would guess that this or this is true for you. They they would think I'm a prophet, right? But it's, it's just right there if you know how to read it. People mm-hmm. are actually very, very simple to read once you understand their background and where they're coming from. Sometimes very irrational, but, you know, that's just what it is.
0: Does intuition play a part with any of the work that you do since it is so um, deep in science?
1: Well... I think it does. Um, I mean, I, I was an unusual therapist because my original degree was in biology with math and chemistry minors. Uh, as a kid, I was always interested in animal behavior. Uh, my parents came from farms. We had a fairly large plot of land, so we raised chickens and you know rabbits and all kinds of different stuff. And I would train the chickens to you know stand on little boxes and dogs and stuff. And so animal behavior, even through high school, just fascinated me. There was a guy named Conrad Lorenz, uh, who's one of the early entheologists, which is just a study of uh, animal behavior. And he, he first identified imprinting, how a little baby chick or a seagull will find a certain call note or spot or something, and then that imprints as mom. And... Uh, a lot of early, uh, that type of work. So I, that just intrigued me. And so I've always been interested in animal behavior. Then I had a friend who was a therapist, and I said, gee, you know, I've always liked working with people and teaching. So that got me interested in doing that. And, you know, the rest of us just kind of followed after that. I, I often joke that, you know, switching from animal, animal behavior to human behavior is kind of a step down. But, you know, <laughs> it's, they're, they're fun to work with.
0: Yeah, they're fun to work with, and they're just so full of love all the time. I mean, even if they have anxiety, I mean, I know that. I have two dogs that help me any time I feel like I'm going a little crazy. I'm like, get over here, you big tub of love. I know you got a big old heart beating for me.
1: That's one of the things that in my research for this new book I just found really fascinating because last century, you know, 80s, 90s, even up to there, a lot of psychologists said animals don't have emotions. Uh, You know, they're just condition response things and the affective neurobiology that really took got underway in the 90s and took off, you know, after 2000 has identified core emotional circuits that are identical in all mammals. So a lot of these circuits you have are the same thing that your pets have. And so they definitely have emotions. And of course, any pet owner or anybody who's hung around animals for any length of time knows that.
0: I was reading a book, and this could be contradictory to any belief that you ever have, but since you brought it up, I definitely want to present it to you. It is in Dolores Cannon's book, Between Life and Death, and there's an excerpt where someone is talking about animals, and like if they go to heaven, and what really makes an animal personality almost, and they were saying that they don't have their own individual soul like humans, they have group Mm -hmm. souls. And in the group souls, it's not that they're, like, embedded with a personality that eventually will show on a human. It's the love, the affection, and the attention Mm. that you give to the animal that ultimately builds their personality. Mm. Is that something that you can... We're, we're,
1: get, we're getting into the metaphysical, religious side of things and mm-hmm. your beliefs. Uh, I mean, I definitely believe there's life after death. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people, especially our current culture, are very materialistic. You know, when you die, you, you die. Mm-hmm. And so it's all about just, uh, you know, what I want, you know, what I decide is right and wrong. Because it doesn't really matter because we're just a bunch of little, you know, machines running around, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I find... People who seriously will look at some of the near-death experience research that's gone on. Uh, a guy in the, uh, I think it was the '70s, uh, Moody. He's the first one that started researching uh, near-death experiences, and uh, it's taken off. There's a national organization; they got thousands of them, and they're all very. Um, can we pause for just a minute? Mm-hmm. The Gardner recording just came. stopped. And I.
0: All right, you are good to go. Recording in progress.
1: We were talking about um, uh, animals and are, do they have a soulish soulish quality to them? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think anybody knows for sure. I think with people, one of the things to consider is some of the near-death experience uh, research that's been taking place uh, since oh, the 70s or 80s. And uh, if you look into it, it's really fascinating because people have experiences where they describe things going on in the operating room, outside of the operating room, you know, miles away. And, and oftentimes it, or not all the time, but oftentimes it gets confirmed. And so even a, a major study that took place, uh, looking at this type of stuff concluded that, you know, you can't explain this through some of the stuff that a lot of people have tried to brush it away. You know, it's the dying brain, the chemical, because the brain is basically dead when a lot of people have these things. There's no electrical activity. Mm -hmm. no heartbeat and sometimes in the case where they're submerged under water you know cold water or something of that nature uh, it's been a very prolonged period of time that they have these experiences Um, so for me it tells me that there's more to life than just the physical part and of course that gets into one of the things i talk about in the book about what makes a person happy and that's meaning and you know what what is your answer for why i'm here and what life is all about and you mentioned earlier that there's a lot of anxiety. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why there's a lot of anxiety is people don't have a very clear sense of meaning. They don't have a clear purpose. They don't have relationship. And so when you're missing those three things, you're not a very happy camper. And as you see, just looking around, all the stuff going on around us. So I hope that answers answers the question. So.
0: Yeah, you're so good at answering it that I'm so overly involved in hearing your answer that mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I know I have to talk in a second, but... Like, what am I supposed to follow up right now? Because every everything you say makes a lot of sense. And yes, I know yeah. I brought up things more related to metaphysical. I love both. I love the spirit and science of both yeah. things. If they can bridge and work together, that obviously works better for my human experience and just how really like limited my capacity yeah. really is as a human to try to understand these things that we can't talk about. But especially... When I look over your background, I know that um, the left brain is 10 times more active in you than um, most people like would allow spiritual experiences to come in because they're like, oh, well, Science hasn't proved that, so we're going to push that out. So I Mm. like presenting these things to you because I know you have a really good scientific background of how to not necessarily dismiss it, but maybe like correlate it or bridge it together where it's like, yes, this is possible. We don't really understand it. This is all we really have now. And near-death experiences besides spiritual awakenings are Mm. one of my favorite things if I can find people to talk about them um, Mm. just because of the profound change that they have after it. You can oh, still yeah. have a neurologist come in and tell you, just like you said, like, that's impossible, you know, your, your brain is dead, chemicals, all of that stuff. But these people were so impacted by this that they, the, they changed.
1: And the people who really study this stuff seriously, they come away saying, you know, those mechanical explanations just fall apart you know and it's interesting too because since 2000 a lot of our explanations for how life emerged and stuff have all fallen apart you know they used to talk about the soup and all that stuff but we could go in on and on about reasons why that just doesn't work and Mm so biology is in a real crisis right now in terms of evolutionary theory to figure out where it all started the DNA molecule is such an elegant molecule, but it's so complex, and there's so many things that need to support it in order for life to take place. And you know, I don't want to get into a big scientific thing, but yeah, no, it's I, uh, I love I, it, I we can just I get fascinated it. by all that stuff.
0: I'm fascinated yeah. with it too because I remember I don't know how old I was, but it was just a random article that came out and it told us that. We have a very high percentage of our DNA, and it's just junk DNA. Um, yeah. We don't like we don't really have to do that. And I, I'm not a scientist, and I certainly don't study it. But even as I read it, having zero background of yeah. that study, I was like, "There's no way that it's junk. There's no way that there's nothing in there." And I yeah. think it's so easy for us to not understand something and just go, "Eh," like let's go away from it. But when you talk about anxiety and stress management, I yep. think that is a supremely relatable topic for even the healthiest, happiest, and most successful yep. person, yep. and all the way down the ladder.
1: And b- by the way, that junk DNA—they now realize it does have a purpose.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, thank <laughs> the, the, goodness we've continued the research.
1: Yeah, it's kind of, even the appendix—they figured out what the appendix is for. So yeah, you know, for, I, I was always taught, oh, it's just a vestigial thing; it's there, you know, it gets infected, and
0: yeah, and we just take it, actually, it out.
1: Yeah, it's, but it holds up bacteria, so when you have, like, a diarrhea or something like that, it can reseed your intestine with, with the uh, the microbes that it needs to digest well.
0: That's it's interesting. Just that sometimes it, I did not know can, anything about the appendix yeah. besides my sisters got taken out when I was younger, and I yeah. remember if they didn't pull it out of her, it was going to explode. But it's fine. Yep, your body yep. can totally, like, act without it.
1: That's like tonsils. Tonsils are kind uh-huh. of the guardians of your throat. But sometimes they lose the battle, so... Mine (laughs) lost the battle
0: in fourth grade. I totally understand that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So going back to, like, some of the modalities that you used, I know that we referenced EMDR, and I want to pull Mm. that one apart lastly. Are there other modalities that you favored to use based on your clients?
1: Well, I I started out as a pretty straight cognitive behavioral person. So, you know, changing thought patterns, you know, uh, should, must thinking practicing behaviors because especially with simple phobias uh, a behavioral approach works with those very well where you come up with a hierarchy of things that the person uh, avoids you start with the simplest ones and you start to expose yourself to them but at the same time you have to manage the anxiety and the thoughts that are going on so that they're managing their that anxiety as they're exposing themselves and as they get used to it then it's like anything else you get it's amazing what people can become used to uh, with Uh, an exposure, a a planned, um, a systematic approach. I mean, everybody, when they go to their first job, they're nervous, right? Mm -hmm. But now it's just, hey, it's just work. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because you've desensitized to it. So that process of desensitization uh, is just all behaviorism is all about. And it works and it's, it's, you do the same thing uh, when you work with psychodynamic stuff. And that's basically what I was talking about when I was talking about looking at the background of the person and finding out what their core response patterns are. So let's say a person was in a very violent home and uh, when they uh, objected to their parents, uh, bad things happened, right? Well, I would speculate, I would speculate that one of the things that drive you is conflict is dangerous. Duh, right? Absolutely. And so as an adult, they would complain, well, you know, I don't understand why I don't speak up. You know, I, I never give my opinion. I'm at the restaurant. My friend says I shouldn't order that, and so I just do it even if I wanted to order it. And it's because there is this conflict of this dangerous response pattern that's kind of has a lot of different tentacles within their belief system and subconscious conscious responses. And that's, that's what psychodynamic approach basically deals with, is those unconscious things. Uh, it's amazing how unconscious we really are most of the day. You know, we, we, you we think we're wherever we think. questions
0: out of my mouth. Keep going.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, you, you, you walk, right? You just walk down the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Your brain is looking at distances. It's judging, uh, keeping an eye out for things that might be dangerous or be also things that are good. Mm-hmm. And all this is taking place while you're thinking about, gee, what should I eat? Oh, I wonder what's on TV tonight, you know? But just thousands of decisions your subconscious is handling. and that's good, because if I had to think about those things, I wouldn't be able to walk down the street, right?
0: Mm-hmm, like left, right, left, right breathe. Yeah. sometimes I joke that I have those moments. Oh, yeah. um, so I recently went to a class where they were teaching meditation with PTSD, and mm-hmm. they were talking about how we, on average, have about 50 to 60,000 thoughts a day. And in the beginning of, like, for example, someone in a healing process going to therapy or whatever way they're going about helping their brain, bringing awareness to the fact that most of those are negative, how do you, I mean, I'm sure you can assess with somebody coming to therapy that's like, hey, I have these unconscious beliefs that are playing out in my everyday Mm -hmm. life. How do you redirect them to really empower them that they're able to stop this negativity in their head how do you rebuild the neuroplasticity is probably the best way that i can say it Mm
1: -hmm. well first of all if we're talking about people that have ptsd or have different problems going on the idea of, of most of those thoughts being negative i could agree with that but that's not true for everybody not everybody runs around with most of their thoughts being negative some people have Mostly positive thoughts, uh, again, depending upon, you know, their background, their belief system, you know, their habit patterns, and personality, because personality plays a role in, in it as well. Um so, you know, I, I lost your question there. How do the, how do you, how do you stop some of the negative thinking? Yeah, right? how do
0: you present it to your clients if you um, realize that this negative thinking pattern is what's blocking them from moving forward?
1: Well, the first step, again, this would be a cognitive behavioral approach, is to identify what are some of those negative thoughts that are coming up. And then you come up with specific counters to them. So if I'm dealing with maybe a more uh, kind of a general response pattern, uh, let's say I've got somebody who's got that conflict is dangerous uh, programming, if you will. Uh, that they've learned to how that the world is dangerous that I have no power and so they act that they don't think that it's just a response pattern that's going on at an unconscious level so the first thing you do is you put a label on it conflict is dangerous because if you have a label on it now I have a way to think about it if I don't have it labeled I can't think about it then the next thing I do is I say you need to have a simple explanation for when you act that way to um, that you can tell yourself because people get caught up into a lot of, I don't understand why, how come, why, why am I doing this, why is this happening, I understand what's going on, why is it happening. And that circular question that goes on, you have to stop so you can move on to, okay, what are you going to do about it? So a simple explanation and the the example we're using might be, uh, well, I grew up in a, in a home where when I tried to assert myself, bad things are spoke up, bad things happened to me. And so I learned that conflict is dangerous. It may be as simple as that. Okay. Okay. Now, what do I do about it? So then I have them get very specific about when does this type of response come up in your life? Well, let's see, it comes up at a restaurant when I want to order something and my mate says I shouldn't order it. It comes up at work when I don't speak up uh, at meetings. It comes up when I don't express my opinion. It comes up with my kids. You know, I don't really like to be too forward with them. And then we say, okay, what are some things you can do that are opposite of those behavior patterns? Because when you want to change a negative behavior pattern, one of the things you do is you want to practice the opposite positive. Okay. And so we come up with specific things to do, uh, and then uh, we say, okay, now we need to have some things you can tell yourself, you know, I'm okay. What happened, like with PTSD stuff from the past, as opposed to like military, and all this does apply to some degree to that as well, is that's in the past. It's over. I'm not going to experience that again. You know, I'm a different person. I have the ability to uh, express myself uh, and reasonable people will accept me. You know, I'm not going to get beat up or yelled at like I did when I was a kid. Because uh, that's really what the person is responding. He's responding as if his parents are going to come out and you know, beat him up or yell at him or whatever at that moment. And so uh, I, I call it, you know, what's happening, what's real. So when they start to feel or act that way and they catch themselves because they now have a label for it, say, okay, what's happening? I'm acting like that little kid who's afraid to speak up because something bad might happen to him. What's real is I'm an adult okay, I can speak, you know, I really want this dish or I really would like to watch this program or whatever it is, you know, that they've come up with as their list of things they want to start practicing. Uh, And that's basically the the general approach, so.
0: Well, I think that's great. It's obviously easier to say you're going to do something and then when you realize you actually have to put it into motion, the action is definitely harder. So helping pull that apart, especially for anybody that knows they have these negative thoughts that they need to overcome or whatever pattern it is you know we all have something but you said that one of your favorite modalities to use was emdr will you explain that to myself and the audience
1: well it's called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing and um like a lot of stuff uh there are a lot of theories about it but we really don't know how it works. You know, we've learned a lot about the brain and neurons and stuff, and we talk as if we really understand all this stuff. And There's a lot of levels of it that we really don't have a clue. Mm -hmm. But with EMDR, um, what you do is, is I'm very old-fashioned. They have light bars and all kinds of special things. I would just have people start to get a back-and-forth movement of the eyes. And when you sleep, uh, your eyes have rim movement where they go back and forth. And we think... Or at least one of the ideas is that you're triggering whatever parts of the brain are active when you sleep, when you do that same thing with brain tapping and other things of that nature. Um, And dreams are interesting because when you look at dreams, uh, they have a variety of purposes. Uh, One of the things that happens when you dream is you consolidate uh, information that you learn during the day. So if you learn how to solve problems or how to ski or something and you dream about it, the next day you'll be better at it. I play guitar, and so if i got a new song I want to learn, I always find I play it, and I think about it, especially if I think about it before I go to sleep, and then the next day when I wake up, I can play it better. It's just that memory consolidates, and so I have better access to it. So when trauma happens, and maybe talk a little bit about memory tags, uh, the way the subconscious works is and the way it sorts memories as to important or unimportant is it puts emotional tags on them. So as you grow up and as things happen to you, memories will get an emotional tag. So, oh, dog bit, dog bit me here. So these are things I did that probably should have an emotional tag. Things that aren't very emotional one way or the other, positive or negative, they just there's kind of information, which is why book learning is not as good as experience. I can learn everything I need to know about driving a car, but until I get behind the wheel and start doing it, that's when your subconscious now can start to tag, oh, that was not a good thing to do. Oh, this is cool. Do this. And now that becomes an automatic response pattern because your memory, your your brain can access those memories through those tags that it's put on. So, when trauma happens, and again, a lot of this is speculative, we don't know for sure, but it seems that you get this really big tag put on sensory stuff. So, if I'm in a car accident, the sights, the sounds, the smells, uh, everything that was taking place at that time gets tagged as dangerous. And so now when I encounter that, I go on alert because I, the danger has been associated with those particular sensory things and sometimes you're not even aware of what it is uh, for example i had one client uh, who was reacting to at work to the certain person and they got really nervous around him even though it was a nice person and until they realized that you know this person looks and sounds exactly like my dad
0: oh that's a big revelation to have
1: oh yeah <laughs> And so, so she started using the uh, the uh, what's happening, what's real approach. You know, and, you know this person is not my dad. They're just just a person. You know, uh, they're they're not going to yell at me. They're not going to do bad things to me. And uh, you know, she desensitized, and they actually became friends. So you know, these types of reactions we have with trauma again can be very powerful. And what happens is the thinking part of your brain shuts off. And it's, it's like whenever you become strongly emotional, the rational part of your brain kind of shuts down and you kind of go on automatic pilot. So these different technologies like EMDR and stuff, what they're trying to do is to connect the thinking part of your brain while you're in that memory. And so you have the person do this. You have them recall uh, different events. Uh, some of them will be the trauma or some precursors to it. And uh, you can actually see when they, they, they stop processing and when it's done well, afterwards, what was what was a very powerful emotional experience or memory just becomes a memory. It's like the, the knife gets pulled out of the heart. Um, so, you know, in PTSD, they say, you know, you, you don't forget, but you don't have to always remember. And that's kind of what you, the goal that you're working towards. Um, and it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, when it works well, uh, a person will come in the next session after you've dealt with something that was really bothering them and you'll say so so how'd that go this week oh i forgot all about it so and that's what you know you, you've done it well and hey, the one great. thing the one thing that's missing in a lot of emd um uh treatments that are done is they'll do the uh the tracking they'll get the memories they'll get the precursors and stuff but they don't do a rehearsal. One of the things that I found that was very important is after we did all that stuff, then I'd, I'd have them think about, okay, what are the tools you can use, for example, with anxiety or, or like that, what's happening, what's the real thing with the, with the guy at work. Now, I want you to imagine yourself at work and I want you to see yourself, have that reaction happen, and then you catch yourself and you say, no, wait a minute, he's just just a person at work. And you calm down. And you run through that a bunch of times. And so they're kind of basically going through desensitization in their mind. And I find that's the element that's missing in a lot of EMDR work. And that's why a lot of times it's not very effective.
0: That would make a lot of sense, too. Because even, like, whether you're going to go into the grocery store or you're going to a meeting or, like you said, work, um, you're already picturing how it's going to go before you go in. So I think...
1: Well, and, again, you're rehearsing it while you've got full ability of your thinking matter.
0: So it's a really good integration technique.
1: Right. Because yeah. um, one of the things you try to do now, and I used to do use hypnosis when I was early on in practice and I decided that the EMDR was better. And occasionally you would see somebody start to age regress and you say, no, wait a minute. I mean, you're, you're just sitting here in my office. It's just, you know, 2023, you know, we're just thinking about this. And so you want to keep one foot anchored in the present one foot anchored in the in the the rational part of their brain while they're dealing with this memory, you know, from the past that has this strong emotional tag to it.
0: Yeah, that is really and, powerful.
1: And that allows those two to connect. So now, the the rational part of their brain will click in when that thing gets triggered, and that's how they can. That's what seems to be the thing that allows them to come, to be sensitized to it.
0: Have you experienced your clients getting any form of cognitive dissonance from just digging through their own traumas? Uh,
1: Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how you mean that. Uh, Maybe tell me what you mean by that.
0: I'm trying to think of an example because I realize that's kind of a broad question when I say that with how many people that you've had. So cognitive dissonance, usually when new information is introduced, into your core beliefs or what you believed happened. Right? So it, it, I know well, it disconnects it, critical it, thinking and I'm trying not to do it.
1: Yeah, it, it I, I'm thinking in terms of uh, uh, somebody who's, 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 who's a doctor who smokes, he knows smoking is not good for him. And so he's kind of in denial to it and yet cognitive dissonance kind of comes in when he starts to really face the fact that, you know, I got this habit pattern, but... Uh, I'm not doing anything about it and so you know that creates a tension and so mm-hmm. you either have to resolve it by taking action doing something or you go in denial basically over There's it like you start stay dismissing in it. Over,
0: and over yeah
1: and so in, in that sense yeah pe- people um, so especially with parents uh, a lot of times it's hard to take a look at some of the negative things that happen to them in life uh, and to just accept that yeah you know that really happened to me and and uh, it wasn't my fault, you know. I was just a kid, mm-hmm. you know, and those types of things should not happen to a child. Uh, and so, you, you can get a lot of a lot of refusal, and difficulty in accepting that in some cases. And, and I've I've run into that a lot. So,
0: yeah, I was just thinking about you know being that person sitting in your office and having to go through these things that I obviously know are holding some part of me back in my present self, but how mm-hmm. difficult it still would be to visit them. And go and try to understand and somewhat release them.
1: Well, and, and typically, you know, it's not like you dive into everything all at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, when things are ready to be dealt with, they come up. And if it's just too much for you to deal with, your brain is not you're just going to block it off and not allow you to even get no, into it. to not today. It's, Yeah, so, you know, you you just start pecking away at it and, you know, you pull the string and one thing will lead to another and it'll come up as it needs to come up. And that's that's been my experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, people who try to bulldoze in and take everything out at once, then that's not good. Uh, Does destabilization
0: happen? Would that be? Say again? Destabilization, can that happen if you try to dig into everything at one time?
1: Yeah, yeah, and I want people to, to stay intact. For when you're dealing like with PTSD type of stuff, I would talk about, you know, it's a dance between processing and containment. Mm-hmm. If you're at work and school and stuff, you need to be contained, so you have to have good tools so that you're not thinking about that stuff and you're not processing at those moments so that you can function in life and yet at the same time you have to take time where you're actually processing it whether that's a journaling at night you know coming into your therapy session or whatever because if you don't process it it is going to come up when you don't want it to so it's kind of that dance between you know you, you want to process but you want to kind of keep it on balance between that and your ability to contain stuff so if you get overwhelmed then it's really hard to just function
0: mm-hmm Which, again, tapping is a really good way for you to self-regulate. Are there any other things that you recommend out of the office for if they come up on a trigger?
1: Most of the stuff I dealt with was more cognitive behavioral stuff, self-talk. I I did routinely give people a relaxation response uh, tape, and uh, it would have a a trigger where they would put their two fingers and thumb together. And the suggestion would be when you put your two fingers and thumb together, you get a relaxation response. And as you practice doing that over time, it actually does work. And I liked it because you could be in the grocery store and you could be putting stuff in your bag and stuff and have your fingers together, you know, and still do that. It's not like uh, holding your ear or doing something unusual. It's a, yeah, a very Yeah, swiping uh, incon- the top
0: meridian line at the checkout. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's it's a very uh, inconspicuous type of thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I just and that came out actually out of my old hypnosis practice days. Uh and when I was doing that, but I found it to be very useful. In fact, it even, even works I've got up on my website, uh, some pregnancy tapes I, I use with my wife. And we had a relaxation response, so if I would touch her shoulder or knee and say the word relax, she would relax. So after contractions, I would say, okay, relax. I remember our first gynecologist, she said, does this stuff work? Oh, yeah, watch. So relax. Okay. Oh yeah, it's uh, nice and relaxed. Okay.
0: Where were you course, when I had a baby? <laughs> I could use that.
1: Speeds up the process. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yes. Yeah. So, so these these types of things, uh, and it's just a strict condition response, you know, thing that you're doing with people, uh, but they're very effective, and you tie that in with the, you know the, the self talk. Uh, And like with anxiety disorders, uh, like with panic attacks, you work with things like distraction, you know, finding things to focus on, uh, things of that nature, breathing techniques, you know, the military breathing, you know, the inhale out through your mouth slowly type of thing. So that whole collection of things together seems to work. Just pick which one works for you. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So I have written down on my notes from the last time we talked, it says, are you living the label question mark? Hmm. What does yeah. that mean
1: People would come in and say, "So why are you here? Well, I have panic disorder, panic disorder, I'm codependent, and they start rallying off all these things, right mm-hmm. And so I'd say, So what does that mean? Well I don't know
0: <laughs> well, I'm here,
1: yeah. And a lot of times when people get a label, then they start living it. Well, I'm, you know, I'm anxiety disorder. So that means I can't do this. I can't do that. Anxiety disorder is gone. And so anxiety disorder becomes like the way the, 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 the lens that they look out through their life. And one of the things that I really try to stress with people is you start to need to normalize yourself. You're a normal person with panic disorder as a group. They have reactive bodies. Um, everything's on an old normal curve. Some people, have very reactive bodies other people you gotta slap them upside the head to notice something right people that i worked with uh, were a cool group because they had these reactive bodies which made them more sensitive more intuitive because they had more information coming in so they're fun people to work with it's the, and i used to tell them yeah it's driving you nuts with your panic attacks but it's the quality that your kids your mate you know your friends your co-workers that they really like about you because you notice things you empathize well uh, you're a real softening quality in a very harsh world and so it's, it's something to be you know treasured you just gotta learn to not be overwhelmed by it you know realize that you're in a world of insensitive clods and you're a sensitive person-hmm
0: because
1: that we was, think everybody else is just like one me of my right things too yeah, yeah I yeah. mean not
0: treating it like it's a curse it really is a gift but knowing yeah. how do you l- utilize it and just really I don't want to be like put your bubble out but yeah. I'm I'm a big put my bubble out type person. I'll still be a big hugger, but this is my space. This is my energy, and all right. I don't want people coming into it stinking it up. I really work. I work really hard to be happy as much as possible. And even yeah. if I have those low days, I still just ride that wave.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the most rewarding things that when I was going to the conferences is, is I had a group back in Virginia that was using the book, and they all showed up, and they had these buttons saying. So I'm anxious. They all had panic disorder, right? And uh, it was fun talking to them because it's a, you know, you know, I got a presentation tomorrow. I'm probably not going to sleep tonight, but I'll sleep good the next night. You know, and so they come to just accept that that's just how I'm wired. And it's just a normal variation. There's nothing wrong with the way I am. Yeah, it has a label. You know, I have panic attacks, and I, you know, I used to have agor- agoraphobia and avoid things and stuff, but but now I realize I'm just a sensitive, anxious person at times, and it's, it's okay. It's normal. Uh, there's nothing to be... Uh, it's it's not, nothing that I have to let it ruin my life. So that normalizing, I think, became an important thing. I found it was really important to get people to trust their own opinion. I used to tell people... You know, think of me kind of like a used car salesman. You know, you're telling me stuff, I'm making guesses based upon my experience, and hey, I can guess wrong, and I can be way totally off. You need to process it through your own brain, your own experience, and decide, is it reasonable or not? That's something I find people don't do enough. They they give everything over to experts nowadays, and they don't ask themselves, does this even sound reasonable? It's like when I was teaching math. You know, some kid would do a problem. And so, let's see... How, many, how much does that cost? Oh, that's ten million eight hundred for eggs. Okay, does that sound reasonable to you? <laughs> Let's go back and rework the problem, right?
0: Yeah, that's a really good uh, example, though, too. Because so often, you're right, a lot of people are like, oh, they're an expert in their field. Yeah. They, they must know more about me.
1: Oh, and there's a lot of nonsense out there.
0: Mm, yes, there Man. is. And I think yeah. presenting it to yourself for me it's like presenting it into your intuition and like I'm a really big like feeling and resonance person, especially the more that I get into connecting like the mind, body, and spirit mysteries, which is why this show exists. And you're here with me today because you have a piece to that science puzzle that I like to add in there. But really that resonance on, even if I'm sitting in front of an expert, and I love everything that they're saying. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean that everything that they're saying at that point is for me in that time. So I have to go and I yeah. have to pick out what's for me at the time and what's going to help me. And maybe if it's not for me, it'll come back down the road later. And I'll be get to yeah. utilize it at a higher octave of myself.
1: Yeah, I, I always use the, uh, the old uh, analogy of the elephant and the blind men, where the guy that's got the trunk thinks it's a snake, and the guy that's got the ear thinks it's a fan, guy that's got the side and feeling the side of it he thinks it's a wall none of all of them are correct but none of them are actually seeing the whole picture and that's oftentimes the way it is yeah i I do have a very strong faith side to me um and the science side of me was always interesting as a therapist because most therapists come out of the soft sciences you know they come out of social science and that type of stuff and coming out of it from a behavioral side, it was always fun just to ask people. So, so why is that true? Why, you know, I, I would not I would just ask questions. And it, it, was, it was fun how often I would find somebody who had no idea why they were believing or doing what they were doing because they mm-hmm. didn't have any you know, strong uh, uh, framework to work out of.
0: That I think you just described my job Is just asking people why they do the things they do, believe the things yeah. that they believe, and would they mind sharing it with me in a non-judgmental format. Yeah.
1: And unfortunately, we're living at a time when people are so inundated with sensory stuff. Uh, they don't really take time to think these things through and figure out, you know, what is it that I believe and why am I doing this and... You know, they're just kind of reacting, reacting from all the stuff that's coming in from all the different sources and stuff. I think that's one of the, the most destructive things nowadays is people don't have quiet time. Mm-hmm. People people used to have a lot of time to think and to reflect and to just, you know, become centered in, into what they believe and feel and, you know, what their goals and stuff are. Nowadays, you know, we're just constantly on overload. You know, and it's, yeah. So... When you start asking people, why are you doing that? What is that all about? A lot of times they end up in a blind alley. They, they have no idea.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I tend to sometimes ask too deep of questions, but sometimes I really struggle with surface level conversation because I've I've been intrigued with deeper things from a very young age. So if you want to sit and have a conversation about, oh, what's your favorite TV show now? I probably look like a really... Just disassociated introverted conversationalist when really you know, I'm like, I'm dying to know other things, but I don't know if we're close enough to ask. So, yeah, how maybe. do I open this conversation?
1: I, I, I'm right there with you. Well, you know, it's well, when I was talking with the uh, when I was dealing like with uh, people with social phobia, you know, we talk about uh, the three things you don't always talk to a stranger about, right? You can talk about the weather, you can talk about uh, a current news event, or you can talk about something the common experience. You know, oh, gee, that plant's kind of interesting. Oh, this line is awfully long, and that's how you get started. And uh, very true. But that is surface, yeah. But uh,
0: it. I mean, there there has to be an, an introductory level. You can't like run into somebody at the bank and be like, "What was one instance in your life that just?" really well, traumatized you, you, you and changed your perspective on life. You, like
1: you, you, you need to have some level of intimacy before you can speak deeply into a person's life. So, yeah, that's true.
0: Absolutely. So veering back over to your book, because I definitely want to give some... I don't want to give the book away, right? I want people to buy it from you. But when you talk about why you even labeled it, why you feel the way you do, just... Blanket statement well, I, out there. I've
1: been, yeah, I've been fascinated with emotions ever since I, I saw Spock on Star Trek. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: and, and, that's uh, funny. And, and my junior year of high school kids used to refer to me as Spock, so I had the, the you know the little sideburns and everything. So, so. I was you know, just science. I was Mister Science and logical and all that. Uh, anyway,
0: you are, but you have such a good personality too. You know, well, that's like- because
1: I got into music. You know. And okay. uh, when I got into the college, you know, the blues was the big things and soul and feeling it, you know, so I got it. You got to have soul. You got to feel it, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, oh, yeah. Music's my favorite healing modality.
1: It helped to balance things out.
0: Yes, I for forget, sure.
1: forget where I was going with that, but uh, yeah. No,
0: you're fine. You're talking about how you're inspired um, oh, yeah, by studying yeah, the, emotions. The book, the
1: book, the book, the book. So the book basically has, it's, it's like all my thinking and all the stuff I've been interested in about emotions I've put in there. So I start with, uh, it's actually four, a journey on four sections. And the first section is what are emotions and why do we have them? Uh, and there's just so much fascinating stuff that's come out with uh, the new affect of uh, neuroscience as to those emotional circuits and how they work and some of the studies that have been gone on in New Zealand and stuff. And then I talk about simple triggers and how to uh, work with them. We've talked a little, a little bit about that today. And then core response patterns, we talked a little bit about that today. And then the last section is the three things that make people happy that uh, positive psychology, the so-called science of happiness have discovered. And that's fairly new. That, that actually started right uh, in just before 2000, there was a big conference, a psychological conference, and the main speaker said that, you know, we've spent a lot of time looking at disorders. We need to start doing some research on what makes people happy and successful. And that kind of kicked off a lot of that. Uh, interested in it, even though some have been going on here and there beforehand. So now there's just a lot of people doing all kinds of research and what makes people happy. So yeah, that's the, the last couple chapters. So it's kind of a little journey I take people through.
0: little journey you take. Do you like tell short stories in it? Do you give any tips and tricks?
1: Yeah, it's there's a lot of stories. Uh, I, I find examples are the best way to understand concepts Mm -hmm. at the end of each chapter i have a list of key concepts and then i have a set of recommended activities so it's actually a workbook so if if somebody wants to go through and do the exercises they'll discover a lot about themselves now you can just read it and get a lot of information too and Mm -hmm. some people you don't want to do that but i'm a teacher at heart i've always been a teacher and so uh you know i used to teach guitar and I taught uh, before I went, uh, uh, got my master's. I taught uh, secondary uh, education. Taught over in Japan for a couple of years. So uh, that's, that's my books always have a, a teaching element in them. At the end of the chapter,
0: I think you have to know if you want to be a teacher. You know, like oh, yeah. some people just really don't have it in it. And then I meet people that are just yeah. so passionate about it, and I think it's just so yeah. admirable. And, I mean, you brought up music. I was going to leave it alone, but here we are. Uh, Uh, What guitar or guitars do you have and play?
1: Well, I I play a Strat now. I used to play a 335 uh, B.B. King's guitar
0: because I liked
1: him. (laughs) But it's a heavy guitar. My back's not what it used to be, and so I I went to something lighter. And I play mainly in church right now. I mean, I have another uh, guy we play with, and we call ourselves Still Kicking because uh, he's older than I am. so
0: Still kicking. That's your band name?
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. I absolutely yeah. love that.
1: Mostly 60s rock, you know, Creeds Clearwater, Beatles, that type of stuff. But, yeah, you're uh, you know, naming off
0: my whole record collection.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we, we do, um, uh, I do a lot of church music, so I, I do uh, uh, services every Sunday, so I'm the lead guitar for that, so I add the color to whatever we're doing.
0: That's amazing. You have yeah. such an interesting life.
1: It's fun. It's fun. Yeah.
0: And it's so your, your curiosities have played out well with your education and all of the left brain rabbit holes that you've went down. But I love all the information that you're able to present to us. And I hope Mm. that whoever hears this episode one, thank you for listening, but Mm. they also pick a copy of your book up and it adds just delight, vitality, and happiness to their life. Mm.
1: Well, that's, you know, that's something I've always wanted is uh, just have people get a little happier. Uh, Alfred Adler, he had a concept that I learned early on that sometimes it just takes a little change to make a big difference. You know, sometimes you don't have to tear a whole house down and rebuild it. You just need to do a little bit of remodeling here and there. And that makes the difference that you need.
0: That's a great outro to the episode. Mm -hmm. It really is, besides telling everybody where they can find you. They always know the description below, there's a connect tab, so any links up, any Uh, books that we can buy you, but is there anything that you would like to tell them?
1: The central place is whyemotions.com, so whyemotions.com. That's my website. I've got links to my YouTube videos and to... uh, Amazon, and the book's out in audio as well as, the fact, that most of my books are in audio as well as paper uh, so, and did Kindle. Did you do and the e-book. audio
0: on it, or did you have somebody else do it? No,
1: I, I let, let Nightingale do that. So well,
0: That's fine. I was just curious mm. if I could hear your voice more.
1: Well, just replay this episode.
0: <laughs> yes, perfect. Perfect. You seriously have one of the best sense of humors I've seen for someone in your field, truly. <laughs> Thank you. I love that you credit the music. Music's my big thing. So it does,
1: my, my sense of humor does get me in trouble sometimes.
0: You and me I have both.
1: Learned, I've learned that I don't have to say everything that's going on inside of my head.
0: You know, they told me that when I was a kid and I didn't believe them, and now yeah. I think they're right. Don't tell them I know they're right, but <laughs> direct experience is our best teacher. That's what I read in a book, and now I tell yeah. everybody now for the way that I talk and the way that I help.
1: Yeah. I've got a smaller group that I've been part of, and uh, we, we've been meeting for shoot over 20 years now. And uh, this one lady was talking about this place she went to, and yeah, you know, I'll never forget these four things that this person said. And the first one was this, and the first thing, second one was this, third one, don't remember the fourth one. But yeah, you know, i never forget those four things they said. And that's like, so bye bye immediately says, well, except the fourth one. So
0: Except the fourth one. <laughs> I read something yesterday that said you can't remember more than four things at a time.
1: Well, it depends whether you chunk them or not. So,
0: yes, yeah, so five
1: to seven, five to seven chunks usually is what you can remember. So,
0: I can remember lyrics, my grocery list, and when to pick up my daughter, and then you know, I have all my library of studies behind me, besides all the other courses that I take, besides you know, this show.
1: Memory with lyrics and music is amazing to me. You know, I've forgotten more music than I know how to play, and yet we'll be there, and somebody will play a few bars of something it's like well it clicks on comes right back
0: (laughs) yeah Yeah, i am in the Mm -hmm. midst of relearning piano and when i sat Mm -hmm. down i just had to breathe for a minute because it'd been so long and Mm -hmm. i went back to the songs that i used to write when i was younger and i played right because i i was like oh god i hope i didn't remember them and i just found a couple chords and i am like where is this stored this Blows my mind that I'm still able to recoup these memories. I wrote the song I was playing today before I got on with you. I wrote it when I was fourteen or fifteen, and mm. I'm still keying it out. The rest of it, but I'm like, I am just so glad that this didn't go away.
1: Well, fourteen, fifteen probably has a fairly strong emotional tag on it.
0: <laughs> it it does, yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, yes. I got that all that adolescent angst going on. So
0: yeah. I mean it wasn't angsty. I, I really yeah. wanted it to feel kinda country y at the time. Yeah. They have, you know, a lot of A chords in there to get okay. that yeah, yeah, yeah. that just kinda like a church feel the higher you go up the range. But yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. it
0: was it was definitely inspired by a lot of things that happen in our community at the time. You know, when somebody passes away in a small town, the whole community bands together and we oh, grieve yeah, together yeah. and we do all of that. And writing and music were two of the things where I could express what I was observing from other people and the feelings of myself. So that's what we've we've lost nowadays.
1: We've we've lost that community. We don't have it.
0: Well, I'm right here, bud. So you tell them where to find me because those are my two things writing and music. And I think that they're divine and I think they're ancient. So I'm here to normalize them and bring them back and show some music in the meantime. So. I wish you all the best of luck with all of your research, all of your books, and everything. It has been an absolute delight to talk to you. All the information you gave me and the audience, Mm -hmm. I really, really, really appreciate it. I learned from everybody, so my thank yous are just uh, on and on and on and on sometimes.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. It's, it's, It's always a lot of fun here.
0: It is. Well, before you get out of here, folks, as usual, we'll end this episode with Oh, let's see, I picked out Serenity by Neovi today off of his album, Horizon. Don't forget, Vitality Exposed brings you this music, so make sure you go check her out or hire, hire her for your next concert engagement. We'll see you on the next episode, love you guys.
1: This is the Hoosier Media Network, your home for podcasting.